AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. We love to explain quantum physics and the mysteries of the universe, but the mysteries of finance, not so much. Intuit helps you demystify your finances through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Understanding standard deductions or interest rates can be very complicated and tricky with big potential consequences. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. And we're back on Dealing Together, where we help good people who fell for bad deals. First caller? I had to buy three identical sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller, what's your deal? I paid for 20 tanning sessions, but had to use them in a month. Now I'm orange. Ooh, you got burned. Next caller. I traded in my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24+. Plus. Hmm, how's that bad? I got to choose from their best plans. So what went wrong? Oh, nothing went wrong. And you're calling to... To request a song? You want a song. Of course. My choice is yours. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, Kelly, do you guys have solar power over there at the science farm? We do. We actually pretty recently installed solar panels on top of one of our barns. Ooh, and so does it give you like all the energy you could ever want? Uh, no, not all the energy we could ever want. I married a man who would like to build a giant laser. <laughs> and so he's always going to be disappointed, but it gives us some power. Well, does it give you all the energy you need? I mean... Not quite. It's cloudy where we live, and then there's nighttime, and the batteries aren't quite up to the task. Who needs energy at nighttime? Jeez, or like in the winter. You guys are way too demanding. Well, yeah, we could just put on like five <laughs> layers of socks. That might make it hard for Zach to wear socks and sandals, but I'm sure he'd persevere. particle physicist, and I'm the co-host of our podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe. And I'm Kelly Wienersmith. I'm an adjunct professor with Rice University, and I study parasites. And welcome to the podcast in which we talk about everything out there in the universe. The tiny little particles that wiggle around beneath your toes and in your toes, and the huge mysteries of the universe. How it began, how it will end, how it all works. We talk about all that crazy stuff and try to break it down and explain it to you. My normal co-host Jorge Cham, the creator of PhD Comics, isn't here today, but we're very lucky to have our returning regular guest host, Kelly Wienersmith. Kelly, thanks for joining us again. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm excited to be back. It's a lot of fun. Well, we try to have fun and we also try to talk about the science and we talk about the mysteries of the universe. We talk about the tiny little particles, but we also like to talk about how things work and whether things will work. 
We like to explore technologies. We've talked in this podcast about how LEDs work. We've talked about how solar panels work. And we've talked about things like space elevators. And I understand, Kelly, that you're becoming something of an expert in how space technology and space colonization works. Yeah, our upcoming book is sort of on that topic. So we've been spending a lot of time reading about these sorts of things. And Soonish had a chapter on space elevators. And are you excited to think about this kind of stuff because you think like, Everything in the future will be based in space, of space farms and space schools and space grocery stores. Well, I have this sense that we are maybe a little bit too overly optimistic about how great it's going to be to live in space. But I do think that at some point we'll have space settlements and we'll have lots of cool stuff going on in space. And how we're going to power all of that and, and make this awful environment habitable is a very interesting question, I think. Because it is kind of an awful environment. I think it's amazing that space is this sort of like cool sheen to it, right? And it is awesome out there. It's like part of the universe, but it's also kind of awful, right? I mean, it's like not a cozy place to be. No, I mean, I think you look at a picture of the moon or Mars and you can sort of imagine places on Earth that look sort of similar and sort of convince yourself like, oh, it's not that different. But no, it's super different <laughs> and it's super <laughs> unpleasant and it's definitely trying to kill you all the time. And that really makes us cherish life down here on Earth. You know, we are really lucky to get to live in this warm, atmospheric little slice of the universe that's wet, but not too wet and has all the right conditions for our kind of life and our cozy lifestyle. And so I think another way to look at space is like as a resource, a way to support and improve life here on Earth rather than as an alternate for life on Earth. And I think there's a lot of enthusiasm about that. But I also think there's a lot of reasons why getting things from space space to Earth is really difficult. And those are maybe some of the big things we need to overcome so that we can make space improve our lives down here. Right. We need like a better highway between here and space so we can take better advantage of all of its resources. Yes, exactly. And also we have to be careful about Earth being a gravity well so you don't bring, for example, an asteroid with great resources too close and then have a sort of dinosaur event <laughs> happen again. So it's a little sensitive. Talk about cell phones, right? <laughs> Oops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Whoops. Extinction level event. My bad. Well, one of the big issues, of course, facing us down here on Earth is energy and how to get clean sources of renewable energy that are cheap and that are easy to distribute and that are consistent and that can heat your toes on a cold winter night, even on the science farm. So what are some proposals? Well, obviously, there's been a big surge down here on Earth of solar panels and green energy such as wind, etc. So that's been helping a little bit. But I get a little worried when I look at these projections from the IPCC about like the various paths we're going on if we only use like 20 or 30 or 50 percent renewable energy for the next few years, like the curves for increasing global surface warming temperatures still look pretty dire. Yeah, and I'm not super optimistic that we'll be able to switch to more climate friendly technologies like nuclear because they have sort of other big downsides when you've got humans using it. Absolutely. And so people have been talking about crazy new proposals to supercharge our solar power industry to make it much more efficient, much more dramatic, much more available by connecting it to space. Yeah. So what would that look like? How the heck do you do that? And that's the topic of today's podcast. Today on the program, we're asking the question... Is space-based solar power realistic? Because, you know, we can talk about space-based whatever, and you can spend $10 billion doing some proof of principle or $100 billion. But if we're going to talk about something like delivering power to people down here on Earth, it's got to be economical, right? It's got to be robust. It's got to be actually realistic. We've got to be developing an industry people actually want to invest in and work in, not just some fancy thing for a nationalistic pride. Totally. And so, okay, so we've got solar panels on Earth and the price of solar panels is plummeting quickly. So like Zach and I have been together for something like 14 years now. And almost every year in our relationship, we've checked the price of solar panels just because we're both excited about renewable energy. And last year we were like, we can afford it now. And partly that was because of tax credits and stuff, but also it's because the price of these panels is going down a lot. And so when you can put these cheap panels on your houses why would you bother putting them in space? Right. So let's dig into that in a moment. But first, I want to ask you, like, what made you pull the trigger? Was it really like it's below the threshold where we can afford it? We keep looking at this and keep thinking, you know what? Next year, they'll be cheaper. And if we just wait another year, they'll be cheaper. So at what point do you decide, well, they're cheap enough that now is the time to buy them? So I think the trigger for us was that there was a tax break 
for something like 30%, where 30% of the cost of the solar panels you could apply to your taxes, and that was set to expire. And so we decided we needed to do it right away. And actually, a bunch of the local solar companies were just way overburdened because a bunch of people must have made that same calculation just a couple months before the taxes were about to expire. And so for us, it was the tax break that made us decide we weren't going to wait for the price to go down anymore because we thought it would be a while. And also, we had finally purchased our own house. And this is something we had been you know, dreaming about for a long time. So we decided it was time to go for it. And it's really interesting to see the evolution of this. 20 or 10 years ago, solar panels were really pretty expensive. They were hard to make. They didn't last very long. They weren't that good. But, you know, people were buying them and the industry got started and the government gave it some pushes. And now we have this very vibrant solar panel industry where the prices are falling rapidly and lots of people are buying them. And so it sort of builds on itself. It's sort of like consumer electronics, you know, once it gets going and the big marketplace comes in with all of its capital, then things just get cheaper and cheaper and easier and easier and better and better. But, but one thing that is not getting cheaper and cheaper as fast as I think we would like is the batteries that go with the solar panels. So we live out in the middle of nowhere and we sometimes will lose power for like a week. The previous owner at least told us that. And so we asked the solar panel company like, so we should buy batteries, right? And we'll store up a week of power. And when our power goes out in the middle of winter, we'll live off of the batteries. And the guy was like, no, 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 you should still buy a propane powered generator because the batteries are way too expensive. We're not there yet. That's totally not worth it. And so... I feel like solar isn't going to be a really great solution until you can actually be storing the power from the sun, even when you don't need it. And it, things like Tesla are helping to drive down the cost of these batteries because they're, you know, making them more efficient and better to put in electric cars. But I think it's still, in a lot of cases, the technology is still not there yet at a reasonable price point. And I think you've put your finger on what motivates space-based solar power, which is that you can't get solar power on Earth 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, because it's nighttime sometimes and, you know, it's cloudy sometimes. And so what if you could, like, beam that power from space anytime any day, no matter how cold it is and how overcast it is. But we'll get into that in a moment. First, we surveyed our listeners to hear what they thought about the prospects of having solar power come down from space. So thank you to everybody who volunteered to answer random questions on the internet. If you're excited to participate and hear your voice speculating baselessly in the future, please write to us to questions at danielandjorge.com. So here's what people had to say. I think yes. Maybe not for us on the ground due to the limits of currently available extension cords, but definitely important for everyone who is already stationed in space. I think it is uh, something is I'm, I'm assuming that would be either a Dyson sphere or a, a uh, what do you call it, solar, solar sail. I think very large scale is impossible. I don't think we have enough matter in our solar system to make a Dyson sphere. Um, but I think some things can be made of it. I guess the problem would be getting the power from space down to Earth again. Um, I guess it would be a good idea to have solar panels outside of the Earth's atmosphere because you'd probably get more power because there's no clouds and things. But then you'd have to get the power down to the surface. So I don't know if you can beam power uh is that too star trek i don't know um otherwise you could do it with batteries i guess and then transport it but that'd be very expensive space-based solar power is not realistic now because i don't think we know how to get this power back to the earth if we're going to use it on the earth I, I feel like that would be a very hard engineering problem like we we already have trouble sending solar power distances here on earth so if it's collected in space that seems logistically like impossible well depends how the technology will evolve but for now no but who knows how how what we will do in the future why not so what do you think of their answers kelly I thought those were super interesting answers. And I thought they brought up some important points, like how do you get the power back to Earth? So they were well thought out answers. What about you? <laughs> I heard a lot of skepticism there, which I think is well motivated. <laughs> There's at least one person who misunderstood the question, I think, and was talking about like solar sails and whether you could sail on photons from stars while you're sort of far away from a solar system, which is another totally fascinating question and would require like massive lasers to push on those solar sails. But I think the question 
of like building solar power in space and beaming it down to earth does seem pretty complicated and problematic. But you know, maybe we're just at the early stages of this industry back when solar panels on your roof were expensive and flaky and hard to arrange. Maybe we're just sort of in the early days and we need to sort of get the ball rolling. Anyway, we'll dig into it. So you mentioned in the IPCC reports that it just didn't seem like renewables were maybe going to be enough to deal with the climate change problem. Like, what is holding us back? Why can't we just use renewables for all of our energy and, you know, stop using things like coal? Yeah, well, I think you put your finger on it earlier, which is that you don't get sunlight all the time. And in some cases, there are places where you get like a lot of sunlight exactly when you need it. For example, if you live in Arizona and you need energy in order to cool your house, then you're getting a lot of sunlight right when you need to cool the house. And so the energy production produced by the solar panels are very close to the energy needs where you need it to drive that air conditioning. But that's not always the case. If, for example, you're living in the dark, cold northern Scandinavian winter, then you're not getting a lot of solar power and you need power in the winter to stay warm. And so the bottleneck there is, as you said earlier, storage and transportation. Like you could have a huge solar farm somewhere in the Sahara or in the Mojave Desert that produces enough power for a whole country. But getting it from there to somewhere else and storing it is very, very expensive. Battery technology and transmission losses make it essentially totally uneconomical. Okay, so solar panels are just never going to take care of some parts of Earth. That's right, because they can't get energy 24 hours a day and they can't get energy 365 days a year. And a similar problem for wind, right? Wind also directly produces electricity and electricity is hard to store efficiently and hard to transfer efficiently. Is this the kind of thing where if we improved our grid dramatically, things could improve a lot? Or are we limited by the physics of transmission loss as you go? Even with a great grid, we still couldn't get the power to places we need it. Yeah, transmission losses are pretty tough. And we're talking about, you know, across the country or across the world. And we're talking about storage and storage is pretty expensive. So, you know, you can't rule out future breakthroughs in battery technology. And actually, we're going to do an episode in a few weeks about electric airplanes, which require innovation in batteries to make them lighter and more powerful. But current ideas don't have us getting there. And so we have this limitation of just sort of producing the power at the right time and in the right place where it needs to be used. All right. So solar power is great, but you've got these problems with trying to get it from place to place and problems with not having enough of it in some of the places that you need it. How does spending the incredible cost of putting <laughs> solar power in space help us overcome these problems? Well, the basic idea is that it's always sunny in space. So you can have these solar panels up in space and they're always seeing the sun, right? They're going to be a high enough orbit that they're not going to be in the Earth's shadow for very long at all, like a very tiny fraction of their time. And of course, they're above the clouds. And so they have basically continuous generation of power. And, you know, a lot of energy is lost when the sunlight passes through the atmosphere. this like reflection and absorption and that kind of stuff. So the idea is that you start out collecting much more solar power, five, six, seven, eight times as much as the equivalent ground-based array. And so that provides you the ability to gather more power and also to gather power all the time. And because you're in space, you can reach anyone who might need that power anywhere. Is that the idea? So like you can get those people who are living in Norway in the winter? Yeah, so that's the other issue is like you generate this power in space, then what do you do with it, right? Because we have already solar panels in space. Like every satellite that's out there in the ISS has solar panels. It's a very well-established way to generate power in space for use in space. If you want to generate power in space and then use it to build, you know, Zach's big laser or whatever, then you need to get it down to Earth, right? So you might be imagining like big wires draped from satellites down to Earth. Obviously, that's not going to work, right? Huge problems there. And so the idea is to beam it down to Earth. So you collect the power in space and then you transform it into microwaves or lasers and beam that down to Earth to some receiver, which then picks it up. And we have a fair amount of experience with working with solar powers in space, right? So you mentioned the ISS has solar panels, Solut, Skylab, Mir, they probably all, I'm fairly certain they all had solar panels also. The rovers on Mars have solar panels. Yep, yep, yep. And so we have some information about how solar panels persist in a vacuum and how long they survive and how well they do as they move in and out of the sunlight. So which would mean they're dealing with these massive temperature changes as you go in the area where you get hit with the sun versus when you go in the shadow of the earth. And so I, I guess we have a 
fair bit of information about the use of solar panels in space. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I think we definitely have some experience. I don't know what the history of repair is for those missions. If they're like constantly repairing and replenishing the solar panels on the ISS because of micrometeorites and radiation damage. So how long have people been thinking about this idea? Is this like a brand new idea or an idea that's sort of been floating around for a while? I was doing a little bit of reading and it turns out this is an idea that's been bubbling up for decades, actually. There was a first paper about it by a Russian scientist whose name I can't pronounce. Can you pronounce that name? Konstantin Solkovsky. There you go. In the 1920s, it's sort of speculative idea. And then I think it sort of burst into public imagination because of a short story by Isaac Asimov. 1941, he had this device where he would collect solar power and then beam it to various planets like around the solar system. But, you know, that's science fiction. And then it trickled back into academia in the late 60s. There was a paper by Peter Glazer sort of like trying to take this topic seriously and break it down and ask the questions about what would work and how much it would cost. So it's been bubbling around for, you know, several decades. And now people are really starting to work on it, developing the technologies, thinking about how to beam it down to Earth, how to make it economical. The advent of cheaper launches from companies like SpaceX are bringing it like, you know, into the realm of the possible. All right. So let's take a moment to talk more about the fine details of what exactly would need to happen in order to make this technology work after we take a quick break. Physicists are famously sticklers for detail, and when it comes to the fine print contracts and hidden fees from wireless providers, I've learned that there's always a catch somewhere. So when I heard that the Mint Mobile wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, where's the catch? But now I'm convinced there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online, so they cut out the cost of retail stores and they pass all those savings directly to you. So you can say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, draw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. All of Mint Mobile's plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month go to mintmobile.com slash universe that's mintmobile.com slash universe cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash universe additional taxes fees and restrictions apply see Mint Mobile for details hey this is jody sweeten from the podcast how rude tanneritos as a nostalgic voice from your past i'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024 you deserve to get away it's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. The Hyundai Santa Fe becomes available early 2024. So get on it now before all the good camping sites are full. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, so it's a little hard for me to imagine all of the details about what will the solar panels look like? How much energy will they be creating? Do they need to be 
repaired? How do you get the power down to earth? So can you give us some more details about how this is all going to come together? So there's a lot of different ideas for how to make this work. Lots of different sort of conceptions. Some of them have, for example, huge mirrors that focus light onto a few solar cells and gather it together. So you're like capturing sunlight from a large area and then focusing it onto just a few solar cells. Other ideas are just have like massive sheets of solar cells, just like you know, lots and lots and lots of them to capture the energy. So there's a lot of different sort of strategies for how to build this thing and how to make it work. And we'll talk maybe in a little bit about which ones are more economical and which ones are more feasible. But one of the biggest questions they have to deal with is how to get this power down to Earth, right? And it seems a little weird, like you collect the power up in space and then you need to beam it down to Earth. It's a little counterintuitive because it was already sort of getting beamed down to Earth. Like the sun is already beaming its power to Earth, right? So like, why do you need to capture it and then like beam it down to Earth? I was thinking initially, well, maybe it's more energetic. Maybe they're like focusing. So the beam of power from the space array of solar panels is like more intense than sunlight. But that's not actually the case. And that would actually be quite dangerous because that's basically building like a huge space weapon and shooting it at the <laughs> earth. And so there's this limitation where you basically can't beam down energy at higher intensity than natural sunlight. So when I hear that, my first thought is, well, then obviously it's not worth it. <laughs> so what am I not understanding? No, that's a very reasonable reaction because you have to like build this space array to capture the energy and then beam it down to earth. And then you still need to build an array on earth that's, you know, about the same size. Because if you want to capture this energy on earth, you need to build something that's going to grab it. And for example, if you're using microwaves, microwaves have a really long wavelength. And so you might need, for example, like arrays on Earth that are one, two, three kilometers wide just to capture this energy. And if that energy doesn't have more intensity than sunlight, you might as well just have built a ground-based solar panel right there, right? Why capture it in terms of microwaves from space instead of just like natural sunlight falling on the Earth? And the answer is that the source of light from space should be more constant. Right. Like if you're on Earth and you're just relying on sunlight, then you're not going to be getting it at nighttime. You're not going to be getting it when it's cloudy. And people who don't live in Southern California like I do know that they don't get more than a few hours of like really equivalent solid sunlight on an average day. So the difference is that it should be constant, that you should be always getting this microwave power beamed down 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So the power would get sent to some giant station that collects it, and then it would be sent through the grid to our houses? And you could have several stations scattered all around, and these solar panels in space could direct the energy where it's needed. So it's not like linked up necessarily for all time between one set of solar panels in space and a receiving station on Earth. You could decide, oh, Australia needs more power, or oh, we need more power in Scandinavia. And you could redirect this power at as needed because you're just pointing it from space. It's like you're shooting it from space down to the receiver on Earth. And that would be sent as microwaves? So there are two sort of technologies people are considering. One is microwaves and the other is lasers. Microwaves, you know, are just photons. There's just another kind of light, but it's light with a very specific wavelength. It's the same kind of radiation, same kind of light that exists in your microwave oven to heat up your food. So, you know, if you beam microwaves at something, you will heat it up. They contain power. And the microwaves just tell you like roughly what the wavelength is of the light. And so we're talking about centimeter length wavelengths, which is not actually that small, you know, compared to like visible light, but it's micro compared to, you know, like much longer wavelengths, radio light. And so these are great because they can pass through clouds, for example. So you shoot a microwave, it's basically clouds are invisible to it. The clouds are totally transparent. And so that's pretty nice. And these things could be like up really far away in sort of middle Earth orbit or geosynchronous orbit, like 35,000 kilometers above the Earth. And they could beam the light down in terms of microwaves. And then on the Earth's surface, you just need some sort of like microwave antenna, which is just like a big chain link fence, essentially, to capture these microwaves. So this might be a silly question, but so... I wouldn't want to be in my microwave. That would be a bad place to be. Do you have to worry about like if a plane passes underneath the microwaves that are getting sent down to the power stations on Earth? Would that be a problem or or not? 
it is not a silly question at all. I don't want to be in a microwave either, <laughs> especially a space-based <laughs> microwave that could like track me and shoot me wherever I go. The idea is to limit the intensity to the intensity of normal sunlight so you don't get any problems like that because you don't just have to worry about airplanes. What about like birds? You don't want to create like a death zone where you have like a column of birds that are like constantly dying and falling onto your microwave array because you're killing them or insects or anything else, right? You don't want to be changing the weather. So that's why they limit it to the, roughly the intensity of natural light. But that is definitely an experiment. I mean, we talked once on this program about 5G, which operates in the same sort of wavelengths. We don't have sort of knowledge about what it's like to live under low intensity, constant sources of microwave radiation because people haven't done it before. So we might discover some bad news, some bad consequences of this. If you live near the station. But current understanding of physics and biology is that that wouldn't be dangerous to humans. Okay, and then different question. So you had mentioned that these solar panels would be in geosynchronous orbit. And geosynchronous orbit is like really high up. So the International Space Station is in low Earth orbit. Geosynchronous orbit, as I understand it, is really high up. And that's where you need it to make sure that an object stays over the same spot in Earth all the time. And so if you are super far away like farther than where a lot of the satellites, you know, Starlink, for example, is. Do you lose power on the way? And is that a problem? Or do microwaves not sort of dissipate over distance? You definitely lose power. And that's definitely a problem. And when we talk about the economics of it, that's definitely an issue. You can't transmit energy 100% efficiently basically ever. And if you're beaming power over long distances, you're also going to lose some power. They're hoping for efficiencies of like 50 to 80 percent. They actually have done some tests. They beamed power using microwaves. Uh, this is a test they did in Hawaii and went for 100 miles and they were able to get reasonable efficiency. But it's definitely an issue. At every stage, you're going to be losing some energy. You know, converting the sunlight into electricity is like maybe 30, 40 percent efficient if you think very optimistically. And then transform that into microwaves is not going to be 100% efficient. And then the transmission down to earth is not going to be 100% efficient. And then the conversion from microwaves back to electricity is not going to be 100% efficient. And so you multiply all these numbers together and it starts to get smaller and smaller. So this whole question of whether it's feasible relies on balancing this like the multiplier factor of you're getting more power consistently with the expense factor of you got more steps in the chain where you're going to lose efficiency. And also it's pretty expensive chain to build. I mean, this thing is going to be in space. That all sounds super complicated. And so you had mentioned they could do microwaves or lasers. Do lasers make any of those equations play a little bit more nicely? So microwaves and lasers are the two ideas. Lasers are a different idea. And the goal here is to make smaller devices because lasers can be more focused and they can be narrower beams just because the frequency of the light is higher. And so it doesn't like disperse as much as it comes down to earth. And so, for example, you can have like a two meter wide beam instead of a one kilometer wide beam. So you can have like smaller stations where you're capturing this energy. You don't need to have like a massive area on the earth. It's like a more intense, narrow focused beam. And the idea there is that also the lasers could be closer, like they don't need to be as far away. So you can have like a larger number of smaller satellites beaming the energy down with lasers instead of microwaves. But of course, you know, there's some dangers there. Like you're talking about more intensity in your beam. You're talking about literally shooting lasers at the earth from space. That gives me the heebie-jeebies. So it gives me the heebie-jeebies too. But like microwaves, is it the case that you would just have to make sure that you never are generating more power than the sun? Like, are these just going to be super weak lasers? Yeah, exactly. You need to not be creating death rays from space. <laughs> so they would have to be pretty weak lasers. And that limits the power there, right? So I think these days, microwaves are sort of on the ascendance when it comes to space-based solar power because you have this limit on the intensity, which means that in order to get enough power, you would still need a very large receiving array. So you just need lots of lasers. And so it might be that you would need like a huge number of these lasers. The other problem with lasers is that clouds aren't as transparent to lasers as they are to microwaves. Microwaves can mostly pass through the atmosphere in the clouds without losing energy, but not true for lasers. Like clouds can block lasers much more efficiently than they can block microwave beams. That sounds like a pretty big problem. <laughs> it's a pretty big problem, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I wonder if there's a geopolitical problem here too. So, you know, when you create this system, you make sure that you're not blasting the earth with lasers that are super powerful. But like, for example, would we feel comfortable with North Korea saying 
we have a power problem and we want to use space-based solar power, you know, to generate power. So is this the kind of thing where you might be able to say the international community is okay with, for example, the United States having this power because we think they'll follow our rules, but we won't let North Korea? Anyway, do you think there's geopolitical issues that might come to play here? Oh, I'm sure there are. And I'm not up to speed on like what the treaties are about how we use space and what the rules are up there, who's allowed to launch these things. I think it's essentially there are no rules, right? We certainly haven't been able to like limit North Korea from launching satellites or missiles or anything like that. So as we move into an era where space is a international resource and one where there are competing interests, we'll definitely have to figure all this stuff out. Maybe a model for this is, you know, how we handle international seawaters or Antarctica or stuff like that. Yeah, I've been talking to some space lawyers and it seems like if nothing else, it's a very <laughs> interesting time to be a space lawyer. Wait, are space lawyers, are they lawyers in space or are they lawyers about space or what's the deal with a space lawyer? That is a job that will always seem fake to me. <laughs> it will always seem like something that belongs in a sci-fi novel. But no, those are lawyers working on questions related to space and it's a super active field and I think they've got tons of work to do right now as space gets cheaper. And so what do they think? is going to happen to like how we'd handle these competing claims and interests in space. It depends on what topic you're referring to in particular. So there's a lot of debate right now on topics like are countries allowed to go to the moon and extract their resources and use them? And the Outer Space Treaty has some sort of vague language about how you're not supposed to be able to like take stuff and it's supposed to be for everyone. Everyone is supposed to benefit. But the U.S. is sort of interpreting right now that we can go up there and if we extract resources, our companies can then sell them. And that's not the same as claiming sovereignty. So the big thing the Outer Space Treaty says is that you can't claim sovereignty of any part of space. And so they would be saying, well, we're not claiming sovereignty. We're just extracting resources and selling those resources. We're not saying we own the lands where we did the extractions. So space lawyers are sort of trying to figure out what to do about those claims and how sound those claims are. And I don't know how that would relate to things like, are you allowed to put space-based solar power up when it has the potential to be used as a weapon. So you're not allowed to put, you know, for example, weapons of mass destruction up in space. But there's this problem with dual use where there's things that you can say like, well, no, I'm just doing this for power. I'm trying to, you know, make sure my people stay warm, but it can also be used as a weapon. And so it becomes hard to categorize. And so, you know, space lawyers are working on questions like that. Well, that definitely sounds very space lawyery. Like we're not claiming we own it. We're just taking stuff out of it and selling it for money. You know, I'm not claiming sovereignty over your house, but I'm taking your flat screen TV and selling it on eBay and keeping the cash. It gets very complicated. <laughs> it sounds like it does. And I think that's kind of the lesson here is that like everything in space is complicated, not just from a legal point of view, but from a logistical point of view. You know, one big problem I have with space-based solar power is that it's really inaccessible. Like if you build a solar power array on your roof, it's hard enough to get up there to fix something, right? You got to get a ladder and maybe break your neck getting up there. But like if we're talking about building something and putting it in space, right? Like you got to repair that thing. It's a huge problem. Remember when they built the Hubble and it had an issue and, you know, one of the lenses was fuzzy. They had to like send astronauts up there in the space shuttle to go and repair that thing. And like if you've waited a long time to get your cable provider to come by and fix something, like, <laughs> imagine waiting on NASA's launch schedule, right? And we don't, you know, the space shuttle was a more versatile vehicle than the things that we have now that bring us to the International Space Station and dock and then come back down again. And so I don't know what it would actually take if you wanted to have a human go to repair your space-based solar panel. I don't know that we have good technology available currently for that sort of delicate, like going to a very particular spot in space kind of job. Yeah. And so we'll talk in the next segment about the idea of how to do these kinds of repairs and what it might entail and what's going on with the economics when we talk to an expert who's really excited about the prospects of it. But before we talk about that, I want to talk a little bit more about something that you mentioned earlier, which is sort of the hostile environment, right? If you have solar panels in your backyard, obviously, you know, there's going to be rain and snow and hail, all these things you have to deal with, but they have the benefit of the protection of the Earth's atmosphere. Atmosphere. But if you're out there in space, right, then you're susceptible to rocks and debris and radiation and all sorts of stuff. It's a very hostile environment. It's not a nice place to be for humans or for solar panels. Yeah, no, the radiation is super intense and it definitely breaks things down. And then in addition to the radiation, the dramatic temperature changes are a problem. So on the International Space Station, you can hear the station creaking as it goes from areas where it's in the sun to areas where it's in the dark. And if you've got things that are 
in the shadow of the Earth every once in a while, they're expanding and contracting as they get superheated by the sun, and then they get super cold in the vacuum of space when there's no sunlight, they contract again. And that's not good for materials over long periods of time. So between the intense radiation and the dramatic temperature changes, that's a lot to ask your materials to handle. Yeah, that's like station quakes, right? Like it literally is like shaking and creaking as it expands and contracts. That's amazing. And then in addition to those problems, you have micrometeorites out there, which are traveling incredibly fast and could easily be poking holes into your solar panels and their space debris. Space debris is a problem that becomes harder every single year. And it becomes harder the more silly humans do silly human things. <laughs> and so in, I think it was 2007, China wanted to prove that they could shoot a satellite in space just as a way of being like, look at how precise we are in our ability to shoot at things in space. U.S. has done that. Russia's done that. India's done that. It's not just China. But anyway, they picked a satellite that was still high enough in orbit that it generated thousands, I think, of pieces of debris, I wish I could remember the number, that are still floating around in space. And over time, you know, we leave satellites and we don't decay them and have them go down into the atmosphere. There's just more and more stuff up there that could run into your space-based solar panels. And so this is a problem that becomes harder over time. And if you have a giant array, you've got essentially a giant target to get hit by space debris. And for important things, satellites, the International Space Station, they have the ability to move out of the way, but that requires, you know, some fuel to be able to move when you know that something is coming your way. So these solar panels might also need to be mobile to stay out of the way. And one way or another, they're probably still getting hit with stuff because we can't track the super tiny stuff with our sensors. No, you're absolutely right. And they might not just be a target of space debris. They might be a source of space debris, right? If they break and stuff falls off of them and you're talking about like replacing components, they're going to be contributing to space debris. And this problem comes as a crescendo, right? The more space debris you have, the more junk you create as it collides into other stuff. And then you get this cascading effect where basically all of space is just filled with junk and becomes unusable. I think that's called the Kessler syndrome. (laughs) Exactly. It's just sort of like your office. You know, you can't get any work done when your desk is just like so covered in things you need to do that you're like frozen. You're like, can't use it anymore. Yeah. And that would be horrible for us in so many different ways. (laughs) because of all the ways our lives rely on satellites at this point. So in the proposals that you've looked at for space-based solar power, do they propose like regular repair missions or do they just plan on these not being up there for so long? What do you do about this problem? Yeah, so I asked an expert about this and he basically just accepts that you're going to have some losses and that you're going to go up there every year and spend a certain amount of money repairing it. And he tries to factor that into his accounting. It's like there's a lot of factors to keep track of. There are a lot of factors to keep track of. And those factors are probably hard to estimate now. And so, you know, there's a lot of lively debate about whether these estimates for the cost of maintenance of space-based solar power are reasonable or wildly optimistic. And that sounds like an exciting topic for after our break. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. The Hyundai Santa Fe becomes available early 2024, so get on it now before all the good camping sites are full. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Stay connected and never miss a beat with AT&T. Our reliable network covers more roads than any other carrier, ensuring you're always in the loop. Whether it's tournament upsets, buzzer beaters, or social media buzz, stay up to date. 
Don't let the action pass you by. Check if you're eligible for a free trial of in-car Wi-Fi at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. And keep the madness going. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. So you mentioned that Solkovsky, who's a Russian guy, was excited about space-based solar power. And the idea has sort of gotten people excited in the U.S. Are those the only countries that are excited about this? Or is this idea taking off in other places? It's taking off all around the world. There's a project in China called Omega that is aiming to be like operational by 2050, which sounds crazy futuristic. But then, you know, 2021 also sounds crazy futuristic. So it's not actually that (laughs) far away. And they want to be able to supply two gigawatts of power into the Earth's grid, which is not a small amount, right? To make that much solar power on Earth, you need like 6 million solar panels. So they have this project to like actually implement this and uh, sort of like be on the cutting edge of space-based solar power. And is this a government-funded project or is this just sort of an idea at the moment? No, it's a government-funded project. And like, you know, all the ideas in China, all the research in China is funded by the government. It's a funny system, the way they organize everything over there. But it's definitely government-funded and it's a project. And, you know, the cool thing about projects in China is that they can make plans for 20, 30, 40 years and keep them because they don't have a change in government every two, four, six years where they're changing direction, like throwing up their political opponents' plans and tearing them up. So one advantage of an autocracy is that you can make long range (laughs) science plans and you can stick to them. So that's something cool that China can do. Silver lining. (laughs) Exactly. They've been doing a good job of keeping up with their plans for like getting humans in space and putting up their space stations. They have actually been fairly consistent in their timelines. I'm sure a U.S. official at NASA would be envious of China's ability to stick to their schedule. Yeah, exactly. The trains run on time. But then there are also plans involving some folks here in the the United States to build a system that works in Australia. They see Australia as a potential good test case. And this is a project pioneered by John Mencken, who spent a long time working at NASA and at JPL. He's very excited about the idea of space-based solar power. And I had a conversation with him about the prospects and how he sees this working and the challenges involved in building this kind of system. Yeah, so one of the things I think is interesting about his proposal is that earlier in the show, we were talking about maybe having like, you know, a giant panel or a giant mirror that focuses things onto a big panel And this proposal is for lots of tiny pieces, which I think does a better job of dealing with the fact that you're going to get damage to them from radiation and micrometeorites. It makes it easier to switch them out. What do you think about the proposal of using lots of smaller pieces? I think it makes a lot of sense. I think he's trying to move away from the concept of like, let's spend $100 billion building one Rolls Royce, but instead let's build up the industry to manufacture these things and get the economics of scale. And if we can produce lots and lots of these things, we can get these factories pumping them out, then we can build a large system out of small modular components. So I'm impressed that he's actually thinking about, you know, how we can get industry connected and drive the prices down to make this thing economically feasible. So I think that sounds a lot more promising than, you know, building one big expensive one, which is going to cost a lot of money and then need a lot of sort of boutique repairs. I was listening to uh, John Mencken's interviewed on the space show the other night, and he was saying that he envisions that sometime in the far future, we'll have these lots of tiny panels. And rather than when one gets broken, just kind of throwing it out and being done with it, you know, it's made of material that if you had a space settlement, you might like to use. 
again. And so you would go out there and you'd sort of just like Legos, take out one piece and put in another piece, but then you'd take the piece you're not using anymore and then break it down and use it for something else in your space settlement. And, you know, that is a super far off idea, but I do (laughs) sort of like the idea of starting to think about how we can recycle the stuff that we're using in space. I thought that was fun. I always get excited when I hear him interviewed because he's so enthusiastic and he makes me enthusiastic. Yeah, he is very enthusiastic. And I like the idea of space recycling, but, you know, we haven't even figured out like aluminum recycling down here on Earth. And so like, (laughs) where can I recycle my aluminum can up in space? (laughs) Seems like a much harder problem. But, you know, I do like the forward looking nature, the imagining that there's going to be like a whole space based ecosystem in which this concept could fit and can support it and provide it. But as with all these things, it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem, right? You know, you could support these things if you had all these other elements, but then you need the, you know, space power to get those elements. And so somebody's got to be out there advocating for this thing, making it happen, pushing it forward so that it does build up that momentum. Anyway, I had a fun conversation with John and I asked him what he thought was the most promising architecture, how he would build this if he was going to build this thing today. Here's what John had to say. The architectural approach that I think is most promising is one that involves a very large number of identical modular system elements, probably about 10 or 12 different families of these system elements. And so the solar power satellite, rather than looking like a huge conventional spacecraft or like the International Space Station or something, instead would very much resemble almost a living organism. So like a coral reef comprises trillions of individual coral, and those are, of course, extraordinarily tiny. But then there are also various fish and anemones and so on. And all of these species cooperate to make what is essentially a a miniature biosphere out in the midst of the ocean. Yeah. So you can hear there, Kelly, how he's describing his like swarm of little mini pieces that build up a large space farm. I think that's probably a better design than the big space solar panel that we talked about earlier in the show. Yeah, I think that makes a lot more sense. I don't really want somebody building like a huge mirror to focus energy and that could be potentially used as a weapon. Yeah, no, I agree. We're on the same page. So did you ask John like how long he think it would take for this technology to mature? So I know we know a little bit about solar panels on the International Space Station, but there's probably still a lot of things that we would need to figure out to make this all work. Yeah, I did. And so I asked him if he thought this is like something in the far future that he's laying the groundwork for or something he was going to be like alive to actually see in operation. Here's what he had to say. The time to develop a modular solar power satellite, do the first demonstration is like, 36 months. The time to develop the first operating pilot plant is like five years. The time to have the first full-scale solar power satellite delivering thousands of megawatts to the ground is like eight or 10 years. And it's because the pieces are the size of a three or six U CubeSat. There's just a lot of them. And it's not this colossus one single thing is just Legos. You're just making the moral equivalent of Tinker Toy pieces or Lego pieces, and you're plugging them together in space. So what do you think about that, Kelly? You think this thing is actually going to be up there in space, beaming power to Australia in 10 years? Well, I have a couple. So one, I don't feel like there's enough public push for this technology yet that it's going to get enough momentum to happen in 10 years. It would be cool if I was wrong. I also think the geopolitical stuff might need to be dealt with a little bit more carefully, and that could slow this technology down too. So I guess I'm not super optimistic about the 10-year time point, but it would be great if I was wrong. What do you think? I think you got to be aspirational and nobody really believes these projections. I mean, if you look at like every single space project we've ever launched, it's always had like, you know, a target date well in the past, you know, like the James Webb Space Telescope or like look at the development of the space shuttle. All of these things are always like 10, 20, 30 years behind. But in order to make them happen, you have to sort of push them, right? You have to say, we're aiming for 10 years from now and then know in the back of your mind, it's going to slip a decade or two. If you say, you know, this is going to happen in 50 years, then it's just sort of hard to get it organized. It seems like the next generation's problems. Yeah, fair enough. So I asked John about the economics of it also, because I was curious, like, 
How does he think this is going to happen? Who's going to pay for this? How do you cut down the costs of getting up there, like having to launch out there into space to actually build these things? And so you can hear John's enthusiasm in his response. Everybody's got a rocket company, but almost nobody is building new kinds of satellites because it's just Mm. not what they're investing in. We actually think that this will be like a snowball. Once this gets going, we think lots of people will want to have a play, as it's called, in space solar power, but we need that catalyst. We need Mm -hmm. a catalyst to do the initial prototyping, build these modules, put them together, validate that they work the way that they have to work. There's no magic in the engineering, but people are gonna wanna see it. Once that happens, we see these power plants as being developed and deployed through a mixture of more or less conventional private sector investment, where uh, private entities invest maybe 15, 20, 25% in a new power plant, and the rest through debt. The Golden Gate Bridge was paid for by debt that was secured by the then newly formed Bank of America. Debt helped pay for the big dig in Boston. For the full-scale systems, it'll be a mix of debt and uh, more conventional large-scale investors who want to own a share of selling two gigawatts per 24 hours, per 365 days a year, forever. So you can hear his enthusiasm there, Kelly. He's like hoping that these costs are really going to come down, that people are going to be developing cheaper launches and that uh, it's going to be sort of like the next gold rush. And I hope he's right. I worry that the cost of solar panels going down is going to make this stuff even less likely because... It'll be easier and easier for more of us to put solar panels on our house. And I know that doesn't solve the problem about nighttime or clouds, but as battery technology gets better too, I wonder if we'll be less and less inclined to invest tons of money in putting this stuff in space. But again, it would be super cool if I was wrong. (laughs) It would be super cool. And I think it's sort of awesome to have competing strategies here, right? Like we're pushing on space-based solar power, but at the same time, you know, we are, as you say, trying to make batteries and transmission more effective down here on Earth. So who knows which technology is going to win, but definitely humanity is going to win, right? If either of these things come out being cheaper and more robust, more reliable, then we're fine, right? I think it'd be sort of cooler to have space-based technology, but I'm a little skeptical of it. I read an analysis of John's proposal from another JPL guy, Casey Hanmer, and he was, to say politely, completely skeptical. He was not believing that this thing is ever going to be a thing. And his number one problem is that he feels like John consistently makes optimistic estimates of construction and launch costs by at least an order of magnitude beyond current best industry standards. And I think that's really the key. And in a conversation I had with John, he agreed that the launch costs are probably the most expensive part of their system. You got to go up there every year in order to repair this stuff or even just to like send new robots up there to repair it. Uh, John estimates that would be 3% of the cost of the system. So if you have a $10 billion cost for your Australian system, then you're going to be paying essentially another $10 billion over the next 10 years to maintain this thing. And according to John, the economics work out and you're still making money and you're going to pay off your investors. And so you can attract interest from investors because it's going to be positive cash flow in the future. But I think that relies in really great detail on those launch costs coming down so quickly. And they are coming down pretty quickly. I'd be interested to hear how that 3% in operation cost compares to operation costs for the upkeep of like a coal-powered power plant or something. Presumably it's much lower, but boy, I need to learn more about power. Yeah, it's definitely much lower. I mean, the price of coal is ridiculously low. You know, you can buy like a ton of coal for tens of dollars. You can build a coal-fired power plant very, very cheaply. But then, you know, then you got to keep paying for the fuel all year. And uh, the nice thing about the fuel for your solar power plant is it's free. It just comes from the sun. But of course, then you got to get into space to repair these things. So I think what we're looking at here is sort of a race between like bringing down the cost of the launches to get up there and to maintain these things and improving solar panels here on Earth. So, Kelly, in the end, are you more or less skeptical about the prospects for space-based solar power? Well, I think the more that we talked about the physics, the more concerned I got about the (laughs) equation for balancing it all out. I remain hopeful that I'm wrong. And I've actually had, so in Soonish, we wrote a little section about how we thought space-based solar power was probably not going to pan out. And so many nice people have written me to be like, no, 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 you have to be wrong. I love this community. Like it's a bunch of nice people who are trying to make the world a better place. And I'm still not totally sure about the equations, but I do hope that I'm wrong. What do you think? 
I'm also skeptical, but I've been skeptical before. And, you know, there's no limit to human ingenuity. And what it takes to get over those problems is believing that it's possible and saying, let's work hard on them. Let's figure out which part of this problem is the hardest and let's get cracking on it. And I think that's the first step. So I'm skeptical it'll ever happen, but I'm hopeful that maybe it might. Well, this community has a lot of hardworking believers. So if anyone can make it happen, I think these people can make it happen. So I guess we'll see. But I'm not investing in any of these projects personally. So maybe that tells you on a more personal level whether I believe it's actually going to work. Yeah, same here. All right. Well, thanks for listening to us talk about space-based solar power. You know, I think that humanity does have a future out there in space, but there's definitely a lot of hard problems to solve along the way. Amen. And thanks again to Kelly for joining us. Thanks again for the invitation. I had a blast as always. All right, everybody out there. So stay curious, keep asking questions. And if you'd like us to talk about some other crazy futuristic technology and how the physics of it might work and whether they're going to be building death rays to shoot into your bedroom, please write to us to questions at danielandjorge.com. Tune in next time. Bye. Thanks for listening, and remember that Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you ready to instill your littlest scholar with a love of learning? Introducing the Preschool Course from the Good and the Beautiful. Enrich curious minds with engaging hands-on material that cultivates an appreciation for literature, art, God, family, and nature. This award-winning system uses a balanced approach to introduce letters, numbers, fine motor skills, and more. Start your journey now at goodandbeautiful.com. The Good and the Beautiful bringing home a love of learning. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.